It was back on June 12th when we entered our current passage of Scripture, the passage that began at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And it was there that Paul writes of God's children, specifically defining who they are as chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, it says. And now we spent the last two months in the text that follows from that. A text that really is this grand composition of what it means to be a child of God. We noticed first the character of God's children. Immediately following that call of being holy and and dearly loved, Paul lists for us five characteristics of what for those who follow Jesus Christ, saying they are compassionate, put on humility and kindness and gentleness and patience. And then in light of these characteristics that are stated in verse 12, we then get a sense of the conduct of God's children, where Paul uses words like bearing with one another and forgiving one another. The next verse, Paul returns to the clothing once again. Much like he talked about in verse 12, he once again says, put on. But this time saying that a child of God will put on love. And then most recently, we saw in verse 15, the condition of God's children, which was what? Peace. Because three Sundays have lapsed between today and when we were last in the book, I felt it was necessary that we review and remember where we've been in the book of Colossians, specifically in our text from verse 12 down to today. This morning, we get to continue, and we look at an attitude that a child of God has towards God, specifically an attitude of thanksgiving. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, the commendation of God's children. I'd ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And we'll read through the end of the book, or the end of the chapter at least. (laughs) Might be a little extra long. I got up here earlier today, have the time. (laughs) Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands. This is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You may be seated. John brought us mourns the loss of an attitude of thanksgiving. Sharing, is it not lamentable that men will never thank God for the countless blessings he confers upon them and then remember him only to complain of the evils which they have brought upon themselves and which are never half so great as their misconduct deserves? I'm not sure that I would go as extreme in my own language as Broadus does here. However, I do not disagree with him. In one sense, there are a great many people who will rarely think of God or rarely think God. But they will ensure that they will complain to God. There are those who fail to see the everyday blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon them. A new day. A love of family. Just the experience of the Lord's creation when we go out. Let me give you another. How about that we get the opportunity to come to church every week, every Sunday? We're permitted to gather here as the body of Christ to hear the word of Lord, the word of the Lord. And then we get to leave. Do you know what happens in Revelation when people hear the word? They die. The word of God is so powerful and so piercing that it judges people. It is this very word that we were told in Revelation that Christ uses to slay the armies of Satan, those who would usurp the authority of Christ. That doesn't happen to us. Now when someone asks you, what did you get out of church today? You can say, I got out. a blessing. We get to hear the word of the Lord and not die. We take for granted the blessings of the Lord. The blessings like these. In other parts of the world, people die for possessing the word. History tells us that people died for proclaiming the word. And certainly we know the stories of those who died for translating the word. We have sufficient reason to give thanks to the Lord because we have sufficient blessings from the Lord in everyday life. Broadus points out that people will overlook those many blessings and instead complain to God. But then he goes on in his comment, if you heard it, and he he explains something quite profound, saying specifically, they complain of the evils which they have brought upon themselves. 
and which are never half so great as our misconduct deserves. We complain to God when we really deserve something far more severe. It's not uncommon to hear people complain about their lot in life, whether believer or unbeliever. They say things like, God must be angry with me, or or, God must not love me. Some people even question, why is the Lord doing this to me now? When in reality, it's simply just part of the nature of the fall, brought about by our own sin nature. And it's really far better than we deserve still. But I think there's a greater issue here. Greater issue than just complaining to God. It's a combination of an unthankful heart and an unsatisfied heart. Examine the prayer life of any believer and we'll find that 85%, 90% of their prayers are something like, Lord, please do this, and please give me that. That's actually a biblical prayer. That's a good thing to pray that way. In fact, the Lord tells us to bring his, our petitions to him, but not before bringing our thanks to the Lord and heaping praise upon the Lord in an acknowledgement of all that he is and all that he does. Preceding our prayer of solicitation to the Lord should be our praise of blessing from the Lord. Perhaps we want to say that's really not a problem, that's not an issue. But one question would reveal otherwise. When we pray, what is the content of our prayer? When we pray, how much of our prayer is devoted to praising the Lord And how much of our prayer is devoted to petitioning the Lord? For most people, very little time is given to thanksgiving of the Lord. How can that be? How can we have trained ourselves that way? It's a mark of our self-sufficiency. We are so committed to do things in our own power and in our own authority that we forget to recognize God's work in everything. I got the job. I worked hard. I brought in the money. No, the Lord allowed you to work. And the Lord can take that away at any moment. Quote John Hanna, Preoccupied with ourselves, we have lost the grace of being thankful. It is sad to live in a world where there is no one to think because we have ourselves become the cause and source of all good things. Such an attitude, as common as it is, is contrary to what it means to be a child of God. Because a child of God must rely upon the grace of God. And so he always responds to God in thanksgiving. A child of God is one who is always commending God for his graciousness, for his mercy, for his kindness, for his patience, and for his goodness. Because every day, we're not just recipients of those things, we're very dependent upon those. If we didn't get to experience those characteristics of God, where would our life be? If we didn't receive God's grace or God's patience, we would all be condemned. So we're dependent upon God's character. 
So as we advance in our text, as we continue to learn what it means to be a child of God, we, we come to a text that tells us a child of God offers thanksgiving to the Lord. I want you to note first the attitude of thanksgiving presented by Paul at the end of verse 15. In our English translation, this is conveyed by three words. And be thankful. I would tell you a child of God exhibits thanksgiving by his attitude in word and work. As recipients of the grace of God, an attitude of thanksgiving is our natural disposition. It should be the natural response of any believer. In dwelling upon all that the Lord has forgiven, the only reasonable response is thanksgiving. And the only reasonable lifestyle is to let that thanksgiving permeate our lives. Recognizing the the depths of God's grace, thanksgiving became a way of life for Paul. It's something that he exhorts for every every believer in their lives. We see that even here in the book of Colossians. How he begins in verse 3 of chapter 1. He tells them, I thank God for you. And then in verse 12, he urges them to direct their thanks towards God the Father. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 7, he describes the response as abounding in thanksgiving. As in there's an overflow. For him, thanksgiving isn't merely something that he does. It becomes a way of life, influencing all his words and every aspect of his work. We see this confirmed here in our text in Colossians 3.15. Notice what Paul doesn't say. I recognize that's, that's a broad range. He doesn't say a lot of things. He didn't give us his recipe for his grandma's apple pie, date honey, because they're in Israel, sorry. He doesn't say a lot of things, but we wouldn't expect him to say that stuff either. What we would expect is for him to say why we should be thankful, and he doesn't. He doesn't give us a reason in this text of why to be thankful. It's just assumed that being a follower of Christ, that is sufficient enough reason by itself to be thankful. Regardless of the circumstances, in pleasure or in pain, in comfort or complication, an attitude of thanksgiving is called upon as our natural reaction. How can this be? Because our willingness to be thankful is not dependent upon people. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's dependent upon Christ. That's why Paul can write to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And in every circumstance, give thanks. In every circumstance. The believer is thankful in all circumstances because it's not the circumstance that produced the thankfulness. It's our trust in the Lord and our trust that God is using those circumstances to bring about his perfection. Turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. While in Colossians it discusses or talks about the character of a child of God, Romans chapter 1 
just after Paul proclaims the gloriousness of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. He then transitions into this description of the unrighteous. And he paints for us a severe picture of those who have turned their back on God. In one sense, this is really harsh imagery. But what we see is that despite revealing himself to everyone, there are some who will reject the revelation of God. And look how Paul describes those people in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you catch what it says there? They did not give thanks to God. Paul identifies ingratitude as a mark of an unbeliever. If thankfulness is a consequence of trusting the Lord, it's not unreasonable for Paul to also conclude that a lack of thankfulness is indicative of one who has never trusted Christ. Continuous gratitude is an expression of our continuous gratefulness to God. That exhortation to always give thanks, to give thanks always, it implies that we always have a reason to give thanks. And we only need to look back at the beginning of our text in Colossians 3, verse 12, and see our reasonings to be reminded of what we to be grateful for. Because it's there that Paul describes believers as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Having been chosen by God, set apart by God, and loved by God, the gospel itself should persuade us to adopt a lifestyle of thanksgiving. Because in the gospel, we recognize that though we deserve nothing, God gave us everything. Though we were wicked and depraved, antagonistic towards God, as Romans 1 says, he not only granted forgiveness, but he himself provided the means for that forgiveness. Incapable of offering any sort of restitution, the Lord offered his son in our place that we may be declared not guilty. That in itself is a motive for thankfulness. See, but our reasons don't conclude just at God's gift of salvation. Our Lord has also given us his work. Through the Holy Spirit, he offers himself to, him, to us daily, working in ways so that we may never want, we may never worry. And so we can trust the Lord to complete the work that he started. And so we submit to the Lord in thanksgiving. Think about this. Our God is unchanging. That means his salvation is unchanging. Should that not also mean that our response to that salvation, our thanksgiving, should also be unchanging? For this reason, the one who is a genuine believer offers genuine gratitude. Adopting an attitude of thanksgiving in our word and our work. And we offer it to the Lord. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's the gospel. And then he goes on. Chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The endless grace of God brings about the endless gratitude towards God. Believers maintain this attitude of thankfulness. And be thankful, Paul writes. And then in verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thankfulness generates closeness. As one is grateful or thankful for another, the expectation is they draw closer together. Thus, if we're grateful for Christ and his work, should we not also expect that we will grow closer in our relationship with him? So Paul's phrase here, this next phrase, just flows from his premise to be thankful. Basically saying that an attitude of thankfulness will cause the Colossians to want to know their Savior more. So essentially he writes, to know the Savior, know the Savior's word. And so I want you to note, second, that a child of God exhibits thanksgiving by his activity in wisdom. Paul writes to Timothy, well-known verse, all scriptures breathe out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. All knowledge and wisdom are contained in the word of Christ. And so just as the peace of Christ should rule our lives from verse 14, now we see that the word of Christ should influence our lives in verse 16. That word of Christ, that phrase, is an unusual phrase. Throughout scripture, we see the word of God or we see the word of Lord. Only here do we see the word of Christ. With our red-letter versions of the Bible readily available to us today, Bible editors have made it easy for us to determine what the word of Christ is. They put Christ's words in red. So then we can then distinguish them from other words in scripture. The problem is those red letter editions are incomplete. We would do better to think of the word of Christ as all that Jesus is both the subject of and the source of. As a word of God, Christ is the source of all scripture. All that was ever written came from him. We know from John 1.1 that he is the word of God. Revelation 19.13, his title is the word of God. As a son of God, Christ is also the subject of all scripture. All of our Bibles were written first by Christ, but also about Christ. And so the word that we see here is to have let the word of Christ the entirety of it, dwell in our lives. That word dwell places the Bible at the center of, of our home, of our church, and of our life. 
that literally means be at home in. As in the word of Christ should be at home in our lives. While the Colossians were providing homes and and places to dwell for the false teachings and the false teachers of their time, Paul is saying what really should be at home is the word of Christ. It's his word that should be accommodated. John Calvin suggests that the word of Christ should have a settled abode and that loyalty, that they may make it their aim to advance and increase more and more in it every day. And so in exhorting believers to let the word of Christ dwell among them, the indication is that the word of Christ should be much more at home in their lives than the word of the world. Once again, we've been chosen by God, set apart by God, and loved by God. And so a response of thankfulness should be that we permit Christ's word to have more authority in our lives than the culture's word. This mandate to let the word of Christ dwell is simply a response of thankfulness. But not only does Paul give a mandate here, he he clarifies the means of that mandate. In other words, he, he gives us instructions saying, let the word of Christ dwell. But then he also tells us how the word of Christ should dwell, how it should permeate our lives. It says, through teaching and admonishing. This this wonderful word, it finds a home in our lives when we give it permission to instruct us when we don't know what to do and to chastise us when we do it wrongly. Then we come to a point of confusion. How do we allow the word to teach and admonish us? The obvious answer is read the word of God, and we respond to it. Again, that is a biblical answer. We know that. But look at the text. Is Paul more specific here? Some would say yes. They would say that it is by psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And others would say no, suggesting that instead those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, those are activities that go with singing in the verse. Let me read to you again from the ESV. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we have two parts according to what the ESV says. That we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And then we sing to God. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But I want you to see how the Christian Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible translates it. Both are on the screen if you want to compare. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Indulge me for a second and and let me put one more up there. The, The LSB. It also says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Compare those both with the ESV and then ask what is correct. Maybe we should back up and say, does it even matter? In one sense, probably not. Both are biblical interpretations because certainly we all know that we praise the Lord by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We did that this morning. In fact, when we think of singing, we associate it with those things. But neither is it wrong to say that teaching and admonishing occur through the use of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And all you need to do is go back to the Old Testament and look at the psalms themselves and see how they do exactly that. That they are not only a means of praising the Lord, but they teach and admonish him. We use it that way today. So either as a biblical interpretation, I would say not a point to divide over. But we also have a Lord that is precise. He's always very specific in what he says. And so we should be convicted enough that we should desire to be as precise as he is. And so I will tell you that I think that Paul's being specific to say that teaching and admonishing here occurs by the use of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 in a passage that we read together this morning during our scripture reading. Colossians three sixteen through verse 1 is essentially the same passage as Ephesians five eighteen through 6, 9. Although Ephesians just expands on some of the points a little bit more. And they both begin different. While in our passage here in Colossians begins with, let the word of Christ dwell, Ephesians begins with, be filled with the Spirit. And then we have very similar overlap. And so I want you to look at Ephesians 5.19. After it says, be filled with the Spirit, Paul writes, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Here, it's translated as though when we speak to one another, when believers talk to one another, they use those psalms and hymns. If Paul says to speak to one another in this way in one passage, it stands to reason that that parallel passage probably means the same thing. It makes sense then to see this text in Colossians as urging believers to use psalms and hymns and spiritual songs <laughs> as a means to teach and admonish one another. That point's confirmed by 1 Corinthians 4.26, where Paul basically says that hymns may be used like teaching a lesson to build up the body of Christ. Does this surprise us? It shouldn't. Most of us can't remember Bible verses. But we can remember the lyrics to songs that we grew up with that billboard top 50 from our own lifetime. How do we teach children in Sunday school? With songs. Last October, I was at a missions conference in California, 
and I was trying to advise a young girl who was seeking to go to the Middle East. And at one point, I asked her to share just a bit of her testimony with me. And she said her family does a lot of ministry with music, and that was kind of her intention. Each of them was inclined musically and gifted in that way, and so they wanted to use that for the Lord. But the desire to do so really developed when her mom was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. Within five months from diagnosis, she had passed away. And so there was a a period where she was bound to her bed. And this girl's mom said, "I, I want to start memorizing scripture. That right there should be an encouragement. Most of us shun memorizing scripture even when we're healthy. This woman's months from death, about to meet her Savior, and she still wants to invest her time in knowing the Word of God more. That is to let the Word of God dwell in her life. Her family laughed at her. Literally, they they laughed at her. And it was because she's married, she had a husband, and her two girls. She couldn't remember their names. And so they laughed. They said, Mom, you can't even remember our names. How are you going to learn and memorize the Word of God? But she was insistent. And so they set it to music. And you know what? She memorized it. When she couldn't remember anything else, she could remember the Word of Christ. Music is a vehicle to deliver God's wisdom. We use it as a tool to influence lives. This also elevates the importance of music in our lives. Because more theology is placed into our hearts through music than any other way. And that is how the word of Christ is to dwell in our lives. At least in this text. I want you to note and consider that a child of God finally also exhibits thanksgiving by his or her action in worship. Notice the final aspect of this verse, and again, reading from the ESV. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Based on what we just learned and what I just told you, let me read it from the LSV that I just quoted. Singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. As a gift from God, music is one of the most significant tools imparted to the church. We just saw that. We just discussed how useful it is for teaching and admonishing one another. And now in our text, it is a means by which we can worship our Lord and express our thanks to him. It should be no surprise to see the words here conclude verse 16. Because it stands to reason that a natural effect of letting the word dwell in our heart will result in a response of thankful singing to the Lord. That as we learn more about Christ, we will want to sing unto him. It's just a natural consequence of meditating upon the word. Letting it permeate our hearts and our minds bodies and our souls coming to a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship with the Lord. 
Doesn't that just naturally want to make you sing or make you want to sing? Is this not why we gather week after week? Having seen what the Lord did in our lives through the week, we gather on Sundays so that we may then worship him. And we're ready to worship him. It's the same response that the psalmist has that we read this morning. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And if we ever lack a reason to praise the Lord or give thanks to him, we only need to come back to this text in Colossians. Look at that word, thankfully, in our text. The translation I just read to you said, singing gratefully. The Greek word there is charis, which means grace. So it's not a matter of just singing thankfully or gratefully. It's a matter of singing gracefully. This is Paul redirecting their attention. So that while the false teachers are urging worship of angels, Paul's saying, worship the Lord and do so because you've been recipients of his grace. This connection between gratitude and grace is made elsewhere for us. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, it says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more people, more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The more we encounter the grace of God, the more we announce our gratitude to God. And so music is an expression of what's in our heart, becoming a means by which we please and praise the Lord. Thanksgiving is a means to worship the Lord. Again, it's not dependent upon our circumstances because it's a response to God's character. In the midst of these triumphs and trials, our thanksgiving goes towards the Lord in all circumstances. I don't remember if I've shared this story here before or not, but as a successful attorney in Chicago, Horatio Spafford seemed to really be in a place of contentment. He was married and had four daughters. They were active in a local Presbyterian church, and he was an active supporter of D.L. Moody. And then the great fire of 1871 in Chicago burned down many of Spafford's real estate investments. A couple years thereafter, a year and a half thereafter, D.L. Moody left with his assistant to go for an evangelistic campaign in Europe. And Horatio Spafford decided this was a great time to not only be part of that ministry once again, but also to take his wife and four daughters on a vacation. And so... As they got ready to embark, he had some serious business matters that he had to remain for. And so he sent them ahead with the expectation that he would just meet them a few days later. And then on November 22, 1873, about halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, the ship carrying Mrs. Spafford, Anna, and their four daughters collided with another ship. And in 12 minutes, it sank. 226 of the 313 people on board would die, including their four daughters. Anna survived, and she would send a telegram back to Horatio just saying, saved alone. Horatio immediately left Chicago to bring his wife home, and 
During his crossing on the way over, the captain of the ship that he was on, as they neared the point of collision, at least in the vicinity, pointed it out to Horatio. And it was at that point when Spafford began to compose a hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me, to say it is well with my soul. Though he admitted not understanding the purpose, Spafford expressed his confidence in the Lord, much in the same way that we see in our text this morning. He expressed his thankfulness through his attitude and word and work. Despite the circumstances, he fixated on the Lord, and he even pointed others to him. He would later write his, Rachel, his sister's wife, or his, his wife's half-sister, and say, on Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, waters three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones. They are safe and folded, the dear lambs. He also expressed his thanksgiving to God through his activity and wisdom. No doubt, sorrow overwhelmed both of them. But he took the opportunity to use those lyrics to impart both the truth of God and the confidence of God. In fact, by the time you arrive to verse 3 in that hymn, you'll see an attitude of thanksgiving. And then, of course, he expressed it in his worship. The fact that he could compose a hymn shows that he continued to worship the Lord. It's a song that is still used today. It's still sung today. Over a century later, it's still influencing people. It's an expression of exactly what we see in our text. An attitude of thanksgiving in all circumstances. As a side note in a story similar to Job, a few years after Horatio and Anna would return, they would have three more children and adopt a fourth. Our thankfulness to God determines our response to God. In circumstances like those faced by Spafford, an ungrateful person will respond cursing the Lord, but a thankful person will respond by praising the Lord. And such an attitude motivates not only our praise, but our service. By our gratitude, we're moved to serve the Lord. Brian Chappelle writes, If thankfulness does not move us to serve God, then we do not truly understand who God is and what he has done on our behalf. Without gratitude for Christ's sacrificial love, our duty will become nothing more than drudgery. And our God, nothing more than a dissatisfied boss. As children of God, we commend our Lord with an ongoing attitude of gratitude that is worth thankful in all circumstances. And so from our lips come continuous gratitude towards the Lord because in our life we experience a continuous grace from the Lord. Let's pray.
Our Father God, indeed I do hope we are thankful. Father, we look upon who you are, we look upon what you've done, and the only response we can have is one of gratitude. We look upon the endless nature of your mercy and and kindness, Lord, and we get to be recipients of that. Father, may that cause us to worship you more. May it cause us to trust you more. And may we live a life that is completely and wholly thankful to you. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.